Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 23 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, July the 7th. First, I'll be talking to Andrew Kurnow, who created the Me Too Foundation, which manufactures Australian-made personal care products and donates 100% of all its profits to registered charities supporting survivors of domestic violence in Australia. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Zinclair Davidson about the likelihood of recession. But first, let's talk to Andrew Kurnow. Andrew, tell us about the Me Too Foundation. You manufacture Australian-made personal care products and you donate 100% of all your profits to registered charities to support survivors of domestic violence in Australia. We do, yeah. So I registered, so Me Too is a not-for-profit organisation. I live here in Melbourne, Victoria, run it down here. We produce, like other great, you know, socially-minded businesses, we we manufacture uh, soap products and hand wash, body wash, bath soap, hand cream, gift sets, candles, and those sorts of things. And we distribute to consumers directly and as well as a number of retailers across the country. And 100% of the profits are donated to registered charities in support of survivors of domestic violence in Australia. How, how does the money support victims of domestic violence? So the, this is the thing, this is why we're insistent that the charities are a registered charitable, you know, registered credible organisation. Uh, we deal with one main charity called Rise Up Australia and they're based predominantly in Queensland but have a huge volunteer network all across the country. And Rise Up Australia is the forefront of helping women particularly uh, re-establish themselves after they a um, domestic violence victim has had to flee a um, you know an environment that wasn't safe for them and and uh, things like you know buying school books and backpacks and tables and bedding and chairs and rehousing them and furniture and um, you know getting them re-established and and these type of companies they get a lot of donations of actual product itself from businesses in the community and they're looking for other ways of you know and certainly other funding to help provide all of the necessary things that people need to women need to get re-established and Nicole Edwards the CEO of Rise Up Australia who's won many community wars and does such a great job for that organization 
you know, she's now in need of a, of a warehouse and a forklift, for example, to be able to just provide the infrastructure needed to get these um, necessary goods out to the women who need to be, you know, have their whole world reestablished again. I believe the other charity is the White Ribbon Foundation? Yeah, so we align with the White Ribbon Foundation as well, because I, I personally fundamentally believe that domestic violence starts with uh, behavioural change. You know, it's, we have to, you know, change the, the conversation and, and that's what White Ribbon's all about. Are you looking to branch out to other smaller charities as well? Yeah, we are. And ideally, you know, we're only just over 12 months in, but ideally, you know, when I first started this, I had a look at becoming a charity myself so we could control where the money is raised or where the money is, is given to and how that's disseminated. But I just found that too difficult. There's already so many wonderful accredited, great charities working in this field. So I didn't want to add another layer to that. And so... That's why we decided on this model of donating to registered existing charities. And there's, another, there's hundreds of, of charities that work at the, at the grassroots community level. When somebody needs a bed for the night at, in their local suburb, there's those sorts of grassroots community uh, charities all over the country. And it's difficult for us as a new organisation to be able to align with all of those community ones initially. That's why we went for the two national ones. But ideally, the goal is to be able to disseminate money through a lot of those individual smaller charities as well, where where money is just so chronically needed. It's, it's just so chronically underfunded. Um, you know, we've got a real problem with, with um, domestic violence in our society at the moment. And even though the government are throwing a lot of money at it, they donate 150, or they didn't donate, they, they provide another $150 million towards domestic violence last March, last year. A lot of these charities are just chronically underfunded. So the idea is for you to basically connect up with smaller local charities. It is. And uh, so how are you going to go about that? Yeah, well, it's, that's the hard part. So initially, Leon, we, we have to sell as much product as we possibly can to raise as many funds as we possibly can um, before we start disseminating that. Initially, we can only do our, our, our bit at a time, but certainly the end goal is to be able to be able to have enough reach through our organisation that we can help all of those smaller charities who are in, in need of, of funding. This is interesting. I mean, there's been a huge shift in society now towards ethical consumption. Yeah. You've noticed that? And Very much. How, how do you work with that? Yeah, it looks like we're right on time in that trend. You know, I registered the business in 2018 and launched in 2019. And, and through COVID, you saw the rise of um, brands like Who Gives a Crap, who are just such a wonderful organization. They donate 50% of their, their profits to, you know, getting new toilets um, built in underprivileged uh, areas and they're donating five million dollars in the in 12 months um there is a massive trend from consumers to these type of products where they know that their dollars are going to uh, a good cause so and that's exactly what we're trying to do I, th I think people's budgets are stretched so far already that we're finding that so we're not wanting to ask people to put their hand out and donate more money we're asking simply that you change your brand of hand wash or body wash um, and buy a, a Me Too Foundation hand wash, knowing that at a, at a very similar price to what you might be paying already in Made in Australia and very, very good quality product, uh, knowing that those, those profits are all going to go to a very good cause and support a, a desperately needed you know, issue in, in Australia. Uh, I think there is, a, as you say, a huge appetite for brands that do that and 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 certainly where we're right on there as well in terms of your 
manufacturing. I mean, how, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it, uh, is it, uh, is it say, free with uh, natural botanical fragrances, stuff like that? Yeah, it is. So I used to have a large wholesaling company and I sold that business to the factory that made products for me. Um, and um, I presented the idea to the owner of that business who, who was supporting me with a lot of picking, packing logistics. So our, our back-end overhead is very low in comparison. That factory is one of the best filling factories in the country and does a lot of main brands as well as some of their own. And I, I know the process extremely well, having worked in that type of you know filling formulation industry now for a better part of 25 years. And working together with him and, and some of his you know key staff, we, we've um, created some really beautiful products. They're, they're SLS free, they're paraben free. We use natural botanical fragrances and I deal directly with the fragrance supplier based here in Australia. All the materials are all uh, Australian sourced, Australian made. And, and yeah, as I say, the, the best formulations that are comparable to anything currently on the market. The other issue too is, I mean, how do you expect to get other brands coming into your to me too. Other brand, yeah, I do. What what my my goal, Leon, is to be to do to domestic violence what the Pink Ribbon did for the breast cancer research. Pink Ribbon was a license in the end, and a lot of major companies came on board. And you couldn't walk down a supermarket aisle, do you remember at the time, without seeing something of Pink Ribbon? There were Arnott's biscuits, there was pure milk, there was laundry powder, there was everything pink. And the amount of money raised um, through that Pink Ribbon Foundation era of you know, five or eight years of, of, of doing a lot of that licensing really made a core difference to their cause. We're trying to do the same thing. When I first had this idea, I registered, I trademarked the logo that we designed in every single product category that I could think of with the idea, um, once we get going, that we could galvanize the entire industry, that we can get some really good business partners on board to license the brand and all of that licensing money will also uh, be funneled through the same way that we're donating now. So um, it becomes a Me Too Foundation version of what the Pink Ribbon did. So I'm looking at brands like Lion Nathan, Pure Milk, if you're listening out there, you know, Colgate, you know, Nest Cafe, Nestle, whoever it might be, if you're interested in getting on a, a good social cause, then, you know, I'm, we're looking at partnering uh, as a big licensing program with a lot of national brands. Have you actually had discussions with any of uh, I've had a couple of uh, initial discussions with a couple of licensing companies and, and one or two individual discussions. I think... Uh, predominantly, most people want me to build a brand first before they're going to then license it. Um, but there's certainly a huge appetite uh, for coming on board. And as I say, we're only about 12 months in now. And, and through COVID, we had a huge uplift in sales. And actually, we ran out of stock for our four months of the year. We couldn't keep up. So it was a bad problem to have. But we've we're, got our infrastructure sorted out now. And, and, um, and we've got some great supporters from, you know, consumers ordering directly on our website to, to you know, a couple of hundred individual stockers around the country reordering us. Uh, our products at wholesale. Um, I think once we really get going, we'll be in a better position to then um, have those uh, proper conversations with the, the larger brands. But certainly I'm open to those discussions anytime now. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch and uh, we'll uh, be watching me too with some great interest. And thank you very much for your time.
Brilliant. Thanks so much for yours, Leon. And now let's talk to RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair, there's all sorts of predictions that uh, AMP is saying there's a 50% possible chance Australia will be in the recession later this year. Uh, what's your view? That's probably a good call. I, I would imagine it, it is very likely that there would be a global recession during uh, 2023. And it'd be very hard for Australia to avoid that recession as well. I think um, interest rates are rising to levels we haven't seen in, in, what, 15, 20 years almost, I would say. Maybe not 20 years. But um, interest rates are rising very quickly. People have gotten used to a low interest rate environment. The global economy is still sluggish. And quite frankly, um, I don't actually think that we've really recovered from economy was still pretty fragile and blowed pandemic uh, in 2020, um, that certainly exacerbated things and made it harder for, for us to avoid a recession. One of the issues is that inflation is very sticky. Yes. So the, the inflation genie is out of the bottle. I, I know yesterday some good figures came on, good, goodish, <laughs> better maybe. Figures came out of the ABS saying that uh, Australian inflation was lower than it had been in the previous quarter. Inflation is still out of control. Um, it is still well above the 2 to 3% band. I can't see how we avoid another two rate rises in the next six months. Um, I imagine there's another 50 basis points still to come and people will jump up and down and complain. More or less, this is how you deal with inflation in a modern economy. It is the the equivalent of 18th century bleeding the patient. So in the bad old days, you would have a fever or you'd be ill or what have you, and they would literally bleed you. How we fight inflation is the equivalent of bleeding. We more or less try to slow the economy down, take money out of circulation. That is what we do. It is an astonishingly painful process. Uh, the very first day I, I went into an economics class, the lecturer actually said to us, when you have economic problems, the solutions are always very painful. And, and that's lived with me for the last, what, almost 30 odd years. And, and so when people say, you know, there's going to be a soft landing and what have you, I always kind of think there's no such thing as a soft landing. When you have inflation, when you have economic problems, there are only painful solutions and there are blunt painful solutions. We simply do not have the knowledge or the understanding or the skills or the tools to fine tune an economy the way in which people say we do. Um, so this is going to be painful, which is why, of course, you should never allow inflation to get out of the bottle. That particular genie is is a terrible, terrible problem to have, and we have it now. Now, to be sure, we don't have the double-digit figures that we might have had in the 1980s. But nonetheless, this is problematic, and fighting inflation at the same time the economy would have been slowing anyway would be a, a, a problem. So a recession is very likely, a slowdown in the economy is very likely, a slowdown in the global economy is very likely. Um, we've got to remember when we shut down the economy in 2020, that was an unprecedented experiment to kind of stop an economy keep it in place, lock everybody down, and then restart the economy. That's never been tried before ever. So there's a lot of learning that's got to go on from that. And there's a lot of pain going to be associated with that. And we need to realize the economy is smaller in many senses than what it was before. And so we've got too much money in circulation. We have to take it out. That's where that inflation is coming from. And, you know, it's, it's, we are in uncharted waters. 
so what we do there's going to be a lot of trial and error there's going to be a lot of mistakes made there's going to be a lot of people really angry but that more or less is a consequences of choices we made um, after the global financial crisis and again choices we made in 2020 we're paying for all of those choices now. in terms of hard decisions a lot of sectors will be hit very hard like retail and hospitality for example yes um, and also the other issue too is that michelle bullock was referring to this unemployment would have to rise to 4.5 percent or higher to deal with inflation yes now she got a lot of criticisms for that uh, comment now to be fair I don't think for one moment she wants to see anybody out of work, but she was literally making the prediction that that is what's going to have to happen. Now, there are a number of ways of thinking about this. Well, one way that I think about this is, of course, if you remember back four or five years ago, four and a half percent unemployment was a good number. Um, so now all of a sudden we're saying, oh, gee, this is not a good number. You know, so, you know, we, we also need to moderate our expectations as to where we are and what's happening. And, you know, um, I, I remember once uh, it must have Kim Beasley was criticized for saying, gee, I would like to see an unemployment figure with a four in front of it. And everybody was saying, oh, what an idiot he is. Whereas now we're saying, oh, my goodness, that would be a disaster. So, I, you know, I, I, I do think we need to be sensible and reasonable. And I think sort of shooting the messenger, as they did in her case, is sort of incredibly unfair. But certainly it is the case that in a recession, people lose their jobs. And, and Saul Eslake has made a very good argument that we should define a recession not in terms of two quarters of, 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 of negative growth in GDP, but rather we should define a recession in terms of a sudden spike in the unemployment rate. I really like that argument. I, I think he's onto a good thing there. Unfortunately, nobody else seems to have picked up on that or sort of run with that idea. But very definitely, if a lot of the current, let's call them zombie firms, whose sales are less than their interest expense, go out of business, that means a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Now, that is an unfortunate consequence of fighting inflation. And that's also another reason why we should always make sure that inflation is strictly under control. So for many years, the, the Reserve Bank governor, Lowe, used to get into a lot of trouble because the inflation rate was below the RBA target rate. Now, I always used to think that's a great argument, uh, that's a great problem to have. Having inflation well above the RBA target rate is a very serious problem that does need to be nipped in the bud. And a lot of the criticisms that's been directed at him are also very unfair. The issue, though, too, is that inflation is at the moment is 6.1% in Australia, which is still too high. And it's going to take a long time to get down to 2 to 3%. Uh, yes, this is true. And... In hindsight, the RBA should definitely have started fighting it before they did. They did delay, and in hindsight, that delay is unfortunate. But again, at the time, there were arguments being made that this wasn't really inflation per se, that this was a supply chain uh, disruption. And uh, those were... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I mean, I wasn't entirely convinced by the argument at the time, but it was a sensible argument to be making. And reasonable people could have reasonably held that view. And the Reserve Bank did hold that view. Um, And in retrospect, you know, that was a mistake. But again, you know, if if we could forecast the future pretty well, we we wouldn't need a Reserve Bank at all. So, you know, those criticisms of, of, of the Reserve Bank are unfair. Yes, it will take time, but we've done it before. We know how to do it. We know there are blunt instruments. I, I realize people do want to try and engineer a soft landing. I personally don't think that this is possible. So I think you should just go in hard. It's, it's, it's like ripping off a plaster. You just rip it off as fast as you can, um, as opposed to trying try and peeling it off you know you you just got to get the pain over and done with so i would have raised interest rates a lot faster a lot sooner but i don't want to be overly critical of, of, of the reserve bank uh, um they, they, they've made decisions that they thought were appropriate at the time given reasonable expectations and information that they had the reserve bank board will have a new governor and a new administration what's your view about that well, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds. I like the idea that you have a seven-year term for the RBA governor and then you appoint somebody else. I'm not entirely uh, happy or not happy. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with the process which they've gone about doing it. If they'd simply said, uh, um, you know, he, he's had a seven-year term, we're going to appoint somebody else. Thank you very much. It's all going on. But I kind of think having this review to criticize the Reserve Bank and then change the governor kind of makes it look like they were trying to get rid of him. And the issue too is the Reserve Bank has to be independent of government. This smacks of government interference. Um, Well, the Reserve Bank policy choices have to be independent of government. The Reserve Bank itself is a government agency. But yes, it does smack of, of, of government interference. And the other thing is, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with reviewing the Reserve Bank. And the team they put together to 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 review the Reserve Bank is pretty high power team. I just didn't agree with the recommendations that came out. I, I'm I'm not at all convinced that we should be doing that. And what kind of uh, annoyed me a little bit was that the government immediately said, "Oh yes, we're going to do that." And I thought, well, no, let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate. You know, making such a profound change to one of the most important economic institutions in the country is not something you do because you don't like the Reserve Bank governor or you think we're going to appoint somebody else. Uh, He was at the end of his term anyway. Uh, They could have very quietly said, thank you very much. And uh, you've had your seven years and we're going to go with somebody else, which is also a very reasonable thing to do. So. I think the whole process has been mishandled quite badly, actually. Well, yes, and of course, the, whoever leads the Reserve Bank will have to show their inflation-fighting credentials. Yes, they will, uh, which, of course, ironically, will put greater pressure on the government because right now the government can always point to the Reserve Bank and say, those guys are independent. But having just appointed a new governor, they can't really say, well, you know, we, we, we didn't get the person we wanted. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I, it's going to make it's going to make it a bit hard for them, I suspect. Well, the issue was that Governor Lowe was playing the bad cop, and Chin Chan was playing the good cop. Yes, well, uh, it's, uh, it's now going to change. 
<laughs> well, I mean, playing the bad cop is literally his job. Um, in person, he's actually a lovely, lovely person. So <laughs> I think <laughs> he's 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 doing the job that he's been paid to do. And uh, he's, he's also acting as a bit of a, a lightning rod, which is also his job. That's what he's getting paid to do. But yes, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to watch to see what happens. But I, I, I certainly think we will be getting a new governor. Well, Sinclair, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? And at their July meeting, the RBA lift rates some change at 4.1%. The cash rate is currently at a highest level since April 2012. The Reserve Bank decided to wait for more information on inflation, the labour market and household spending to better determine the impact that existing rate hikes had. It doesn't mean the tightening cycle is over. The RBA still anticipates that further rate hikes may well be needed to contain the current inflation outbreak. With inflation still elevated and the unemployment rate near half-century lows, it's hard to argue with that assessment. However, the RBA is also mindful that the economy hasn't yet felt the full impact of the first round of rate hikes last year, and so should expect a pretty measured and cautious response over the next few months. The RBA is particularly concerned about the stickiness of inflation, particularly in the service sector. Domestic sources of inflation appear to be holding up even as foreign sources of inflation start to subside. If high inflation becomes entrenched in expectations, then it will require aggressive hiking above and beyond what we have seen thus far to contain. And psychedelics can now be legally used as medicine in Australia in a world-first approval that's aimed at treating acute mental health conditions. From Saturday, MDMA and psilocybin, better known as ecstasy and magic mushrooms, are cleared for post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment-resistant depression. The approval was granted because of the lack of effective treatment options and preliminary data suggesting the hallucinogens may be uniquely positioned to benefit patients according to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the country's regulatory authority. Still, a raft of rules will make it difficult for most people to get their hands on the psychedelics. Only registered psychiatrists who have the ethics approvals normally needed to conduct clinical trials and have gained regulatory authorization through a provider program will be allowed to prescribe them. The TGA said no medical professionals are currently approved to prescribe the treatment as applications only open on July the 1st. The cost may also be a barrier for many people. Daniel Perkins, co-executive director of the Psyche Institute, and a senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne estimates that a course of treatment including psychedelic-supported therapy sessions could cost between $15,000 and $25,000. It's still early days when it comes to research on the use of psychedelics for the treatment of health conditions. Their long-term benefits and risks are known, and it's unclear how long the initial improvements seen among many patients will last. No specific products have been approved in Australia, which means healthcare providers or the facilities they work with will have to import the hallucinogens for their patients. The decision to regulate MDMA and psilocybin as controlled substances, first announced in February, was made by an unidentified senior medical officer at the TGA and reversed previous rulings, including, as recent as October 2022, that classified both as prohibited substances. While the TGA said that therapeutic value of chemicals hasn't been established, the restrictions they put in place around administering them and the known benefits and risks make the approval appropriate. Outside the narrow medical setting, both MDMA and psilocybin remain illegal in Australia. And Troubleton County and consultancy giant PwC has been referred to the new anti National Anti-Corruption Commission after revelations that staff at the firm leave confidential government information to clients. The firm is one of the first issues to be referred to the new independent agency, led by former New South Wales and war crimes investigator Paul Brewer, when it opened operations on Saturday. Green Senator Barbara Pocock made a formal referral of the consulting firm to the Commission over the weekend. 
The PwC scandal has been high on the Greens' list of issues, the party says, should be investigated by the National Corruption Watchdog, which has been set up to detect and investigate corrupt conduct in the Australian government sector with the power to compel witnesses. However, the NACC does not have to investigate a referral to this made to it. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus has stressed the independence of the agency, saying that while any Australian can refer any matter that they believe they may have constituted serious or systemic corruption, only the Commission can determine what matters it investigates. Senator Pocock said the watchdog would be able to shed further light on PwC's use of confidential information. The Australian Federal Police began a criminal investigation into the consulting firm and its former partner Peter Collins in May. A joint report from Labor, Coalition and Green Senators released last month accuses PwC of a calculated breach of trust over the scandal and the group's attempts to minimise the seriousness of the situation. The firm last week said its global clients and industry leader Kevin Burrows would become the new chief executive of its Australian business. It also confirmed the sale of its government business to private equity group Allegro Funds for $1. There were also 47 roles made redundant at PwC last week in the lead-up to the end of the financial year. And Tom Seymour has headed a list of eight partners that PwC has kicked out of its business over the linking of the confidential tributary information to help its big tech clients avoid paying tax. PwC Australia named the eight partners as the culprits of the consulting firm's tax scandal as it released the main findings of its own investigation into the handling of the Treasury information and past failures in professional, ethical or leadership responsibilities. This compares with 63 partners that Parliament named as receiving confidential information but not necessarily acting on it. One partner who is subject to the investigation is on medical leave, while the firm has no reason to believe the remaining partners and staff who are named in the Senate submission have disseminated confidential information. Mr Seymour, who took over from Luke Sales as Chief Executive of PwC Australia in 2020, has been given notice of his dismissal from the partnership, which has been brought from his planned retirement in December. He's been at the firm for 21 years. Richard Gregg, Peter Van Dongen and Wayne Plummer have also been given notice of their sacking from the partnership. The reason why they've been given notice and not, and not immediately dismissed is because it is understood they haven't agreed to leave. As owners of the firm, they have been given notice of the findings against them and a process has started under the partnership agreement to remove them. And Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill has called on accounting firm PwC to provide more detail on the tax leak scandal, which has seen eight partners, including former Chief Executive Tom Seymour, pushed out the door. The Labor Senator, who chairs the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Corporations and Financial Services, which has been investigating the scandal, said more questions need to be answered by the firm following Monday's announcement of the forced exits, which also included former Chairman Peter Van Dongen. This follows four partners who were previously named as being involved in the, in the confidentiality leaks, following PwC's work with the Australian Taxation Office on legislation to crack down on multinational tax avoidance. Senator O'Neill said PwC also needed detail on what action was taken to hold the PwC Australia team to account, including former Chief Executive Luke Sayers, who now runs his own consulting firm based in Melbourne, and the legal counsel from 2015, when the alleged leaks of confidential material from PwC's dealings with the tax office occurred. Senator O'Neill said the announcement that eight partners were being removed from the firm, in addition to the earlier full mark, the beginning of some indication of redress by PwC, but in no way should it be perceived as a definite resolution to this matter, she said. She said PwC needed to provide more detail on the, inter- on the internal investigation, which had led to their dismissal, details of the misconduct they had allegedly been involved in, and whether any had 
being referred to bodies such as the Australian Securities Investments Commission, the Tax Practitioners Board, or professional accounting bodies. And the ratio of tax to GDP has breached the 23.9% benchmark after a bigger than an expected budget surplus from surging income tax receipts and resources companies' profits and risks becoming permanently entrenched, economists warn. As Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Treasurer Jim Chalmers face pressure to spend a surplus now nudging $20 billion, business groups also warn splurging the windfall could fuel inflation and further interest rate rises. Finance Department monthly figures released last week showed in the first 11 months of 2022-23, the budget was in surplus by $19 billion, much higher than the $4.2 billion forecast in the budget less than eight weeks ago, with company and personal taxes reaching record highs. Economist Chris Richardson estimated the tax-to-GDP ratio for the financial year hovering about 24.2%, which is the first time it exceeded 24% since 2007-08. The former coalition government self-imposed a cap of 23.9% for tax revenue share of the economy based on the average during the second half of the Howard government. But Treasurer Jim Chalmers has dismissed the cap as arbitrary and a target set for political purposes and does not feel bound by it. Mr Richardson said high prices for Australian commodities caused by the war in Ukraine, bracket creep, inflation and low unemployment had pushed Australia's tax take past 24%. While the ratio could fall as these temporary pressures eased, Mr Richardson said the trend is not the friend and the 23.9% limit could be permanently exceeded with high taxes required to fund government. And workers in Australia's fossil fuel industry, deemed most at risk of losing their jobs due to the energy transition, can seamlessly switch into the offshore wind industry with only little training, the new report has found. Findings, if proved correct, will temper fears about the impact on workers and local communities of Australia's rapid transition away from fossil fuels that is reshaping the country's $2 trillion economy. Australia has earmarked offshore wind as central to providing the electricity currently generated by coal, and a report from Star at the South, country's most advanced offshore development, said there's significant crossover of skills required by workers. As a result, many workers displaced by the transition in Gippsland, Australia's first offshore wind region, can find an employment in the emerging industry. What we found is that around 70% of workers in traditional power generation sectors have those core skills needed to work in offshore wind with just a little bit of digital training, Erin Coldham, Chief Development Officer at Star of the South, said. In the maritime industry, it was even higher, close to 90% of the existing maritime industry are well equipped to work in offshore wind. Star of the South's findings mean it is likely to have a large talent pool to choose from as it undertakes development with several major fossil fuel generators winding down operations. NG Australia's Yalorn Coal Power Station is expected to be retired in 2028. The coal power station is Victoria's second largest electricity generator and employs about 500 permanent workers, many of whom will need alternative employment in the next few years. Star of the South which is targeting its first generation by the end of the decade, expects to create up to 2,000 jobs in the state over its life, including 760 in Gippsland during construction and 200 long-term local jobs during operations. And only one in five women have the highest paid jobs in the federal public sector, despite holding 57% of all the roles, a new survey has found. And the gender pay gap in the federal public sector is wider when agencies such as the Reserve Bank, NBN, Australian Post, CSIRO and the ABC are included, along with the core public service. The gap for the larger group was 11.6% compared to 7.2% for the core, based on total remuneration. 
surveyed by the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and the Australian Public Service Commission found that women make up 57% of the federal workforce but occupy only 48% of top leadership positions. At the same time, women dominate the number of lower-paid jobs, almost one in three men, 32.7% in the top earnings quartile, earning above 141000 compared to almost one in five women, 19.4% the survey found. This trend was reversed in the lowest earning quartile, 28.7% of women earning below 94000 compared to almost one in five men, 19.8%. The survey was the first review of the federal public sector to include the broader business agencies, which voluntarily submitted data. An Optus owner, Sintel, Gladys Berejiklian's ultimate employer, has an official zero-tolerance approach to corruption and conflicts of interest and demands staff comply with laws and codes of practice in the jurisdictions where they work. The telco declined to comment on Monday on the implications for Ms Berejiklian's role with the, with the company stemming from the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption's finding last week that the former New South Wales Premier engaged in serious corrupt conduct. Sintel acknowledges the ICAC report published in relation to Ms Berejiklian's time as a member of the New South Wales Parliament. The Sintel Group has a code of best conduct policy for all staff, a spokesman said. Ms Berejiklian is weighing up a legal response to the ICAC report, which found to have breached public trust over a series of regional grants and a secret relationship with former state MP for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire. Sintel declined to say if the ICAC fine meant Ms Berejiklian had run afoul of the company's code of conduct policies, which include provisions of corruption, reputation and wrongdoing, criminal, moral or otherwise. Sintel said its policies committed to higher standards of probity and accountability in its affairs. It recognised the importance of protecting its operations, employers and assets against unethical practices and therefore adopts a zero-tolerance approach to fraud corruption, company policy documents state. A section in Sintel's seven-page policy on compliance with the law demands employers comply with all laws, regulations and codes of practice applicable to the different jurisdictions where it operates. Another segment concentrates solely on conflicts of interest, requiring employers to, to disclose relationships with a bearing on their role. Employers must avoid all situations which could result in conflicts of interest, it states. They should comply with the reporting and disclosure requirements of potential or actual conflicts of interest and disclose any matters which could reasonably be expected to interfere with their professional duties. The ICAC report, released on Thursday, found Ms Berejiklian was subject to conflict of interest during her five-year relationship with Mr Maguire that she should have disclosed as she advocated for grant funding for projects in his electorate. The Commission said that in supporting the projects, Ms Berejiklian was advancing her relationship. The Commission also argued she breached public trust for failing to report Mr Maguire on suspicion of corruption when she had been aware that he stood to benefit financially from a series of land deals he was using his position in Parliament to advance. The spokeswoman noted Ms Berejiklian had been a Singtel employee for just over 18 months and referred to a statement in which she said she'd always put the needs and interests of New South Wales above her own. And struggling business owners face a horror show over the coming months as a taxman circles and operates a cost spiral in the wake of a 17% spike in company insolvencies over the past financial year. The lingering impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and skyrocketing inflation and interest rates sparked a wave of our company failures across Australia worth hundreds of millions of dollars. According to indicative Australian Securities Investments Commission data, there were 5,520 administrations and liquidations nationally for the financial year ended June 30, 2023, a 17.2% increase from 4,710 the year before. In Victoria, the numbers were up 39% to 1,476, while Queensland rose 23.5% to 1,004, 
New South Wales added 2.5% to 2,153. WA was up 53.5% to 485, and ACT by 5.8% to 128. In South Australia, the numbers were down 5.4% to 212, and Northern Territory by 34.4% to 21. In Tasmania, insolvencies were flat at 41 for the year. The final national tally will be higher, because the preliminary data does not include companies where no state is recorded. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Scott McKinnell, the Regional Manager for Tenable, to talk about website security. And I'll be talking to EY economist Cheryl Murphy about the economic outlook for the new financial year. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.